Hello and welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. The Deep Dive is an in-depth discussion on some of the most important issues facing us here in the wine country, in California, and throughout the nation. On the program, we present insights, stories, and perspectives that you might not hear anywhere else. Our new shows air every Thursday at 9 o'clock on KVON 1440, and you can always listen to us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcast app, by looking for The Deep Dive with Larry Kamer, and on our website at kvon.com. I'm always happy to hear from you and especially welcome your suggestions uh, on future discussions and possible guests. You can email us at deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com, on Twitter and Instagram at deepdiveshow, and uh, if you have a moment, we'd appreciate it if you could like us on our Facebook page at Deep Dive Show. My guest today is Kevin Madden. Um, Kevin and I have known each other for quite a while. He is uh, one of the more prominent uh, spokespeople uh, in the country and commentators uh, on the Republican side of the aisle. He works with uh, Arnold Ventures and is, uh, you've probably seen him as a CNN political commentator. Uh, he has experience uh, with other uh, Washington, D.C. public affairs firms, including the one where he and I got to work together. He served as a senior strategist and spokesman on three presidential campaigns, spokesman for the uh, Office of the House Majority Leader, uh, and was Deputy Director of Public Affairs and National Spokesman for the U.S. Department of Justice. Kevin Madden, thank you so much for joining us on The Deep Dive. Great to be with you. Yeah, now that you mentioned it now, we've known each other probably 12 years. It's a long, long time. Since high school. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when we're talking, you know, here we are talking, it's the end of May. Uh, to set the stage, you know, you're sitting on a different coast where we are out here in Napa County. You know, we're a pretty small population. We have, uh, fortunately, just 78 cases, COVID cases, and three deaths. There's a three tragic deaths, but number a lot lower than in other parts of the country. But the uh, economic dislocation here has just been staggering. Uh, we get more than 2 million tourists here a year, and they spend about $4 billion, uh, that's pretty much dried up. Uh, and as we're talking, we are one of the counties that is opening up things like socially distanced restaurants. And just yesterday, uh, people were got the great news that they uh, can go out and get a haircut, uh, which I know probably puts us, uh, makes us the envy of a lot of other parts of the country. Now, I, I want to ask you, you and I share a background that starts in politics and moves into the world of corporate public affairs and crisis management. And to me, this COVID crisis presented itself like, like many crises do, right, as a, a seeming sequential series of problems that, if addressed right and if communicated right, uh, could be, you know, could be solved properly. Um, but remarkably, it quickly transcended all that. It became all-consuming, universal, and hyper-hyper-partisan, which we, we're going to talk about a little bit today. As a crisis management expert, are you surprised by the evolution of the COVID crisis? Um, well, I think it's, what I'm surprised by it is that it's, it's very new with regards to crises, I think, particularly when you look at the economic component of this is not a crisis that is driven by was driven by one company or one um, member of leadership inside a company's bad decisions, or it wasn't driven by a larger trend line that was affecting a particular industry, um, and it wasn't really driven by you know mistakes made in a marketplace. This was driven by you know. Um, it was driven in such a sudden way and it was foisted upon people. And also it was, I think so many of the economic impacts were driven by government directives. So this wasn't something that was organic in that sense. Um, and what you didn't hear people, you didn't hear about people de like deciding to close their businesses, Go businesses and schools and travel 
uh, and official government functions were shut down. So I think that was what was very different about it. Also, you know, when you look at of big events that have a political impact, usually what happens is they are driven by disasters. Like, you know, we had like the Sandy, um, uh, hurricane, the Hurricane Sandy in 2012, or you had like the Paris Massacre in 2016. These are national security events or they're, um, you know, um, uh, travel-related disasters, sorry, not weather-related disasters, things like that. Um, and this was a healthcare crisis, an economic crisis, and a, na- and a national security event in that it was driving geopolitical tensions all wrapped in one. That was what was so stunning about it, just the size and scope of the crisis. Did anything about COVID really catch you off guard? I mean, are there things that, you know, in the early day, in the early going, as you were looking at this through the lens of, you know, your past experience that you just got dead wrong? It just went in a completely different direction? Well, I think because there was a the nature of the virus, you know, I remember trying to consider it. And when anytime you have something like this where you have an unknown and there's an X factor, you try to put it in context with either um, a comparable, a comparison, or a template, or a past crisis. Right. And if you look at Ebola and you look at H1N1, those were um, those were uh, health scares that created a crisis, but then they really largely never played out on a broader scale where things like your daily life were impacted. People talked about it. People were very aware. People were worried. There was an economic impact, but it was usually a blip on the radar compared to what it was a blip on the radar compared to what we've seen here. And so the other thing is when you try to do the comparisons or you try to put it in the context, the biggest mistake was that everybody was saying, well, look, X amount of people die in car accidents every year. That's we're not stopping people from driving. And the flu last year, the seasonal flu killed X number of millions of people and we weren't shutting down schools. And I think that the, how uninformed I think the, 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 the gatekeepers of information were in the media. And if you go back and you do a study of this in the media, there are people right now that are right that are writing very critical pieces about the about the administration and the government's reaction to this, who were writing pieces that's, that said, you know, this is not something to fear. And let's put it in context compared to the other healthcare scares that we've had as well. So I think a lot of people who are really trusted sources of information or were the gatekeepers of information had very different and varying degrees of competing information uh, or competing sets of facts about it. And so therefore we had uh, a public that wasn't really that well informed about it from the get go. And you could even argue there's still a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't fall into that kind of, normal dichotomy of, you know, it's a natural disaster or it's a man-made disaster or it's an act of terrorism. You know, this is how we tend to tend to look at, you know, these crises. This is something that um, emerged in a very different way and then became all of those things. Right. Um, is there anything that you were just, I mean, in your experience, um, you know, of, of watching this and being involved in it, and I imagine you've got some client business that's affected by it, where you were just uh, dead wrong about where you thought it was going to go or things you thought were going to happen that wound up not happening? I'm sorry, Larry, could you repeat that? I was saying, are you, you know, as you've been involved in this and observing this and, and kind of, you know, all of us tend to want to look at where this thing is going and what's going to happen next. Are there things where you were just dead wrong, where you thought something was going to happen and it went 180 degrees in the opposite direction? Boy, this is going to sound um, uh, terrible, but I've largely sort of, I think, on the how, the mileposts of from the, from when this became a crisis to how it's been managed right now. So much of what I predicted has actually come true. Well, there you go. That's the, that that answer is perfectly <laughs> I'll get to acceptable. The wrong part, but I will tell you, I think. Let me start. Let me try. Before, 
prior events and in, in, in a different economic and in different political climates, the rally around the fag, the rally around the flag effect is very real. Right. Uh, that people come together. The instinct of government leaders is to unify to uh, try to bring bipartisan consensus and try to um, really provide optimism and, tr- and transparency to the process. And I think that's largely happened at the state level. Um, governors right now, there are, you know, I think half of them have uh, approval ratings of over 60 because they've taken a more technocratic approach to rallying support to the uh, to, to, to dealing with the pandemic in their particular state and bringing both Republicans, Democrats, independents, you name it, together in order to combat it. Because they, they think they recognize the severity of the impact it could have on their state economy. But the politicization of this, in that it was going to very quickly be viewed through the, the uh, through a partisan lens, and that every um, re- reaction would have a response where people quickly divided into um, the partisan camps and criticized this, the one side or the other. That became very apparent. And I think that was largely driven by the, the process, the, the, the process by which we, um, I think many in the public right now process information, mm. which is through social media and through um, friends and family who communicate through it uh, about this pandemic on a partisan land. Because so you think, they're largely getting their information from social media as well as cable television. So you think it was inevitable that COVID would become political? I, I remember in the first few days of this, I said, we have to watch this because this is a crisis where I think maybe at the state level, they're better positioned to handle this, but at the federal level, Given the partisan, given the very raw partisan nerves that are exposed in the nation's capital, this will quickly be politicized. And also, given that the, the national news cycle is driven by the president, President Trump slash executive producer of that news cycle, and his instincts are all, are are a little bit more, um, they've less to do with sort of looking for unity, and instead they have more to do with um, gaining credit, and then also. A drawing contrast with opponents and ratings. So yeah, so that was something that I, I remember saying we have to watch for. Yeah, um, I think where I've gotten this wrong is I will say that I I believed I thought that there was going to be a much quicker and more vocal and, and wider buildup of frustration with stay at home uh, stay at home orders, um, just because. We're Americans are very social, social beings. We love our barbecues. We love our gatherings. We love our sporting events. Uh, 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 our ability to, um, you know, constantly sort of engage with the freedoms and liberties that that we've always become so used to. That I figured after about 60 days that it would quickly start to turn with uh, frustration with the economic downturn coupled with uh, government-issued stay-at-home directives that it would be much more, um, that it would be a bigger backlash. And we've seen a very vocal minority um, expressing that outrage, um, but we haven't seen it as broad, play out as broadly as I might have expected. So, yeah, I, I, I think you and I are uh, probably both uh you know both got that one wrong i i just i i've been surprised at how compliant frankly uh people have been um and how compliant they've stayed you know even as this has become really kind of grueling especially parents with young kids at home you have them i i our kids are older um but you know i i have i have friends with young kids at home who even in casual conversation, we'll literally talk about, I'm going to kill my children, right? They're so, <laughs> and I'm sure they don't mean it, but, yeah. you know, and so I, that, I don't know. I think everybody's, I think, I think that's right. And I think everybody's personal circumstance is different. I think, I think if this had been timed through the winter, uh, it may have been different. I think yeah. school years were wrapping up in many areas of the country, Right. So, um, weather's not so nice. And, and, and for, in my particular case, um, 
my sons were right right as they did the, when they announced that they were going to shut the schools down. We were right on the verge of a, of a spring break. So um, they had time to transition towards distance learning. Um, it didn't seem as abrupt as just like closing the school down that day and then trying to figure it out on the fly. So that may have helped. If, if this had maybe had hit during a different time at, at peak, at a different time of the year, it may have been different. If you're cooped up and it's also cold outside, you can't get outside, you start to get that cabin fever, it may have been different. Mm-hmm. So looking, looking beyond that, so COVID becomes political, which in our time means it morphs into a culture war, uh, you know, where things like masks and church services and pool parties and reopenings, you know, become point of division. Um, whatever happened to just fixing the problem? Well, I think, again, it's, it's um, largely how people get and process information. Um, the outreach meter that is so easily sort of uh, stoked via the, this little supercomputer that everybody has in their pocket right now with video and the sort of dopamine hit registering their opinion of either rabid support or rabid outrage, um, it's right at your fingertips. And um, as a result, there's a lot of virtue signaling that goes on. As a result, there is a lot of uh, reflexive uh, criticism going on. And it's true. And I, I, I note this all the time with um, anytime I talk to audiences that are interested in the political dynamics. So, so much of what we debate through the political lens nowadays it has very little to do and can't really be solved with actual policies or, or legislation, right? So we have people who are in Washington or in state houses around the, around the country who are looking at either, you know, their oversight responsibilities or are there to, uh, fa- you know, fashion and then implement legislation in order to address sort of the, 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 you know, the daily, um, um, you know, the mechanics of, of just of, uh, of, of government services. So little of what we debate is focused on that. People don't want to wear a mask. You're not going to be able to sort of pass a law that says, or pass a bill that says you have to wear a mask. I mean, we know that that's not really going to happen. And, um, So much of that now is a focal point of political political and policy discussions. What do you mean? What do you mean by virtue signaling? What does that term mean? Well, um, you know, right now you have a lot of uh, people wearing masks almost as a form of protest against those that won't wear masks, not because they believe that they they want they're interested in sort of the they're necessarily their priority is the interest of the health of somebody who's wearing a mask, but instead it's to sort of draw the battle lines of their ideological views of whether you should or shouldn't or whether you are or aren't wearing a mask and what your responsibilities are, what that says about you and your worldview. Um, and that's become a very animated, pointed debate. Um, you saw it like, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's instances of this where they they're constantly have reporters that are out um, they're wearing a mask and they're filming people who aren't wearing masks. And the message is very simple, which is they should all be wearing masks. And look, I'm wearing a mask. Um, and so I think, um, and I'm not taking a side one way or the other. I think it's for me, I'm trying to observe how these debates are processed. Um, it has very little to do with, um, or it has, it has more, it has less and less to do with public health and it has more to do with your political worldview sometimes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, um, I would rather not wear one, you know, as somebody wears glasses, it fogs up, fogs them up all the time and it does get pretty hot in there. But, you know, I, I guess I buy into this idea that, you know, if the public health authorities are telling me do this for the other guy, uh, then fine. It's, it, it doesn't seem like that major an inconvenience. Yeah. And I think, that's what I mean. Is, it, is it, if we had a if we had a data driven discussion on this, which is if if you and I are wearing a mask 
there's like a 99% chance that there's not going to be a virus passed between either one of us. If I'm wearing one and you're not wearing one, now it's a 75% chance. If we're neither one of us are wearing one, it's a 30% chance that we prevent it. So it's like, well, if, if, if it presented to the, the debate that way, it's very simple. It's a very simple decision, and it's a very easy decision by between by, by, between two of us. But if we start to argue it through the politic, the lens of politics, and whether or not you have to wear one, or it's a government issue directive, or this person who I identify with is wearing one, this one who I identify with isn't wearing one, therefore I'm not going to wear one. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm sort of going into a tautological argument here, but. <laughs> we are uh, we're talking to Kevin Madden uh, here on uh, the deep dive. I'm Larry Kamer. Kevin, um, you were talking about masks and you know how masks have become this kind of symbol. Uh, I want to talk about how this is playing out within the GOP circles uh, that you're in touch with. So, you know, the Republican governors of Ohio and North Dakota have pushed back against Trump. Uh, and, and this message uh, that wearing a mask is somehow a sign of weakness. Do you think there's a real divide within the Republican Party over this question, over this mask question, and then the larger question of, um, you know, hyper-politicizing uh, some of the aspects of COVID? Yeah, I think this goes back to a point you made earlier, which is that the, these debates um, are sort of driven by culture uh and just the view of government's role in 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 deciding whether or not a a, a mask has to be worn or should be worn i think that's it but i I think governors are there are are a particularly interesting breed um uh or a particularly interesting subset inside the republican party in that um in order to do their job very well they really do have to put ideology and party identification second, and they have to be they have to take a very technocratic approach in how they administer um, uh, public warnings and offer uh, insights and advice uh, in the interest of public health. And when they do that, and I also think that in those those two governors that in particular that you mentioned, they didn't do so by then on the other side of the criticizing anybody who disagreed with them, they justified their decision, offered the uh, evidentiary trail of, of, of data on why they were justifying that their decision in that manner. And I think had a, a certain level of transparency to, to how they um, offered that advice. And that really is the key, I think, to how these governors have developed 70% approval ratings. And the ones that have gotten in trouble have all reflexively played politics somehow. They've either tried to take a cheap shot at the president, whether he deserved it or not, that's, everybody has a different view. But it's in politics into something that is very apolitical, and it is um, bringing an opinion where facts and data are enough. That's, I think, where you kind of, you, you end up paying a price uh, on this, as it relates to sort of you know marshaling public support behind a given um, behind a given um, uh, decision. Well, and then you got a guy like uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia who can't seem to win for lose it, right? I mean, he he does something uh, very aligned with what he thinks the president's all about, and the president criticizes him anyway. Yeah, and I think I look. I think there's a lot of personality um, differences there. I think there are a lot of political differences. There's um, Georgia is a very interesting state when it comes. If you look at the political scene, it's uh, uh, the folks that uh, that work there. Um, it's rough and tumble business in Georgia, <laughs> uh, and you know. But I think like hey, look, if, if you if you if you look at the fact that the most popular governors in the country are uh, are, are Republican governors in blue states, and you look at how they've approached this issue. They've done so in a very nonpartisan way, and they've done so with one goal in mind, which is the interest of the welfare of their of the of their public and the citizens, whether yeah. they're Republicans, Democrats, or Independents. And that has been rewarded. 
And, you know, I work at an organization where we work with all these governors. We work with Republican senators. We work with Democratic senators, Republican members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, independents, you name it. And all of our work is done trying to bring our, all of our work. Our work is focused on trying to bring all of these parties together and unify them with smart policy that we can justify works because we've done the data. We have the data and we've done the research that indicate uh, to back that up. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the lesson in this is that that's one of the reasons why so many governors are popular is because they've, they've taken that similar approach. We're going to uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with uh, political advisor and CNN commentator Kevin Madden. I'm Larry Kamer, and this is the Deep Dive. We're back talking with Kevin Madden, political advisor uh, and uh, uh, Republican Party spokesman and and uh, operative. I, I wanted to ask you at the beginning of this about um, Arnold Ventures and what the um, what that organization does and what you do for them. So Arnold Ventures is a um, is an organization whose mission is to maximize. Um, maximize opportunity and minimize injustice. Um, and you can apply that across a lot of policy areas, but at Arnold Ventures, we focus on a number of really important ones where that maxim um, drives our work, shapes our work every single day. Uh, criminal justice reform, uh, healthcare reforms, um, higher education, public finance, public health, uh, and democracy reforms. Those are sort of the very, very big areas. But we work in a lot of different other areas like climate change. Um, we also work um, on uh, uh, trying to um, combat the, the opioid epidemic, for example. Um, but that's our goal, is to maximize opportunity uh, and minimize. One of the reasons I went to work for Arnold Victors is um, – if you look at, I spent a long time working in politics and political campaigns. And when I was working in that arena, either whether it was on Capitol Hill or on campaigns, I was always convinced that we were the end-all be-all of, of, of change in policy. Uh, and what happened was, as I began to work with folks like yourself, and I, I began to take a look at the world through a broader lens of uh, business world, uh, tech world, academia, what I found was that on the landscape of change, politics and 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 politicians and the legislative process is really sort of one of the. It's really on the on the on the sort of um, the the. It's really on the back end in the sense that um, they're very reactive to much bigger, broader changes taking place across the landscape of public debate. So if you look at philanthropy and academia and culture, which is a mix of media and academia and um, um, entertainment even, uh, as well as uh, how technology has changed, how business and industry has changed, those have a much bigger, broader impact on, the, uh, on, that, on that landscape. And so I spent a long time working on campaigns and politics uh, as a sort of late adapter in that environment. And I really wanted to, 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 to have a chance to work with the folks at Arnold Ventures who are focused on driving policy change, um, on uh, research, uh, fusing research and data with advocacy in order to really have an impact not only at the a national scale, but also um, we're one of those foundations that also works very closely with state and local government to have an impact as well on all those issues, criminal justice, healthcare, education, um, uh, public finance. Okay, enough about the real issues. Let's go back to talking politics. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, as you're talking about all these things like criminal justice reform and, and that sort of thing, I'm like, yeah, all the issues that we were talking about you know, once upon a time and that don't just go away with this pandemic. I mean, somebody's got to well, be... Well, I'll tell you what, with, with, I'll tell you what, Larry, with this pandemic, something like this, a major global event really does... 
expose a lot of the existing and look at how this uh, this virus has spread uh, and the coronavirus has spread in places like uh, in, in amongst incarcerated populations in prisons and jails. It's been a huge problem, and it was and it was one of the reasons why so many governors started to focus on this issue anew because it had the potential to threaten public health care systems. Uh, and then the same goes for uh, health care and um, how hospital pricing, drug pricing, uh, 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 patient billing, all of those issues that um, affect the day-to-day lives of patients and, and, uh, and healthcare practitioners across the country, how much of that is impacted as well. And the, the ultimate healthcare reforms that are going to come on the other side of how government deals with this too. We will be very busy, and folks who care about criminal justice and healthcare reform will be very busy for the next few years. Do you think that the uh, 2020 election turns entirely on Trump's handling of covid or do you think it's more complex than that? It's much more complex than that. I would say for the layperson watching this election, I'd ask them to look at two things. Elections always have two very big dynamics. The first dynamic is is what I would call the atmospherics of the noise. Uh, and that is what we watch every single day play out on CNN, Fox, MSNBC. Uh, we see it play out on social media. You hear people talking about it at the water cooler, right? Coffee shops. Hey, who's up? Who's down? Who do you think is going to win? Why? And um, the day-to-day coverage of that is really driven by a lot of noise, right? Trump called Biden sleepy. Biden said X on MSNBC, which was a gaffe. And now the campaign is reacting to it. And I always, when I worked on campaigns, you can get caught up in that very, very quickly and think that that is the main thing that is shaping voter opinions and attitudes. It's mostly shaping the opinions of people who live, breathe, and eat and sleep campaigns like reporters and editors and people who live in New York, uh, Washington, D.C., L.A., and Chicago. But campaigns are, are also the other dynamic is, and I think in this election, this is, this is particularly true, given the, how big of an event um, the coronavirus pandemic has been. They're driven by the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are things like, is the economy going, uh, or do people feel like the economy is headed in the right direction? What is unemployment rate at? What is, um, the, 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 you know, what, is what, are, what are we looking at with growth rates in the economy? You know, as a as one of the, I'll paraphrase an old uh, saying that a friend of mine who worked in national security and intelligence once said. He, he they used to say this about in the Cold War, which is that in Russia, they would say that don't believe what's on the TV, believe what's in the fridge, or the refrigerator, because you can't tell people that everything's going really well if they're hurting at their kitchen table. And right now, I think there's a great deal of economic anxiety of thirty nine to 42 million people out of work, unemployment rate at double digits, growth has fallen through the floor, um, businesses are shutting down, capital formation is, is stalled. Those fundamentals, numbers related to the coronavirus pandemic itself with 100,000 dead, that's largely going to be what drives this election. Now, I think Trump believes that, and I was talking to a reporter the other day about this, I said, you know, when it comes to the noise, Trump always has his hand on the volume control. And it's going to be, yeah, I think, I think, like, I said, he wants to turn this into the Spinal Tap election, which is, look, this one goes to 11. (laughs) I want 11. (laughs) Yeah, and and if he turns up the void, if he turns up the noise, he believes that I think he can drown out a lot of those fundamentals, because they're very tough right now. They could change. We're still... We're still a long way away from an election, and if, if and, and 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 anytime you look at polls or you look at numbers related to the economy, it's always the trend line that's most important. In 2012, people would have, you know, the, the, the economic numbers overall weren't really that great, but the trend line through that 2012 for President Obama was improving. People's feelings about the economy was trending upward. Job. Uh, numbers are trending upwards, and um, unemployment rates are trending slightly downward. And so that ultimately, that those fundamentals really carried the day in that election in 2012. 
and I think they're likely to carry the day in 2016 as well. I'm sorry, 2020. How time flies. So you don't think uh, people are going to base their decision on whether or not they believe Joe Scarborough murdered one of his staff people? Yeah, like I saw there was an ad the other day that somebody put out um, about um, the, the president's campaign manager and, um, you know, decisions that he had made or dollars that were going through his, his consulting firm. And I can tell you with really strong authority that there is not a single persuadable voter out there who is going to make up their mind based on the campaign manager of either one of these campaigns. What they do, what they say, who they know, who they don't know, what gaffe they made, this will come down to the fundamentals of whether or not people feel that it's time for change or we want more of the same. Yeah, And that will largely be driven by the economy. Uh, the one guarantee, though, is that Trump's campaign manager is certainly making a lot more money than I am, and uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe even you, too. Uh, at least what I've read about him, and what does he drive, a Lamborghini? Well, you know, having, having worked on, look, I mean, <laughs> it's, it is probably surprising to a lot of people, you know, uh, whatever those numbers are. But man, having worked on 18-hour days for uh, for two years straight, like, yeah. I never, I never really, I never really found much solace in criticizing or complaining about any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, the door swings both ways, right? I mean, the door swings both ways. You complain about how much money somebody's making or some decision he or she has made, and pretty soon, you know, you're going to be in the hot seat. So, hey, uh, I'll tell you, so I, I saw a poll today that surpri- that was surprising to me on aspects of the coronavirus, and it was asking, uh, this is an AP uh, NRC poll, it says only about half of Americans would get a coronavirus vaccine shot if they could, and that the highest no's were among African Americans, about 40%, and re- and self-identified Republicans at about 26%. What do you make of those numbers? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look at the poll and really sort of see how they ask the question. Um, I don't think people like going, I think there, there might be some fear of, of just going to doctors and getting vaccines. I think the vaccine process right now has been accelerated, so there may be sort of less confidence that all the protocols may have been followed in order to get there. I don't, I don't have any doubt that, all right, I, I should say I have strong confidence that, that the FDA and others that are involved in that type of decision-making process wouldn't allow an unsafe vaccine to come on to the market. So while it is a, a real fear that people have, um, you know, I, I would I would say that 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 you know people have to uh, that you know that they should. Um, look, I think you just have to recognize that people do have fears about those type of things, right? And that absent any more additional information, absent consultations with doctors, absent a larger body of evidence, that there is that X factor that may cause them to say, maybe I wouldn't get it. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'll go back to something we were talking about a second ago. You know, naturally, uh, our attention has been riveted on places like New York and New Jersey and California with these high population centers. But we're now seeing this development of a kind of checkerboard around the country in rural communities, especially with meatpacking plants, uh, smaller towns, you know, presumably more favorable country to Trump. How do you think the politics of COVID are playing out in, in Trump country? Well, um, I think right now there's a very, um, there's a very large reservoir of goodwill for the president in many of those pockets uh, of red states where um, you have rural or exurban voters who just as part of their identification, it's defending the president and what he stands for. And I think that's largely because many, um, there have been many times where those folks, those voters feel that they haven't been given enough attention. Um, people haven't given them enough of their concerns of voice. Uh, that, that a lot of media elites and coastal elites have been reflexively critical of them and their intentions. 
And because the president um, doesn't do that, um, they have a strong affinity for defending. And it really does. It's not so much about policy or performance. It really comes down to um, their uh, alignment with him on, on attributes, which is strength, um, telling it like it is, uh, and stands up for the little guy. So, um, and I think in areas of rural or exurban parts of the country where people feel like left behind, um, that's a, they have a very strong identity there. The other thing is, um, they necessarily they don't necessarily have an alternative. Right. And um, I think one of the criticisms that you'll see from many of those folks on why they why do you stick with you know they, they get that question all the time why do you stick with Trump? Well, it's because. In, in the pursuit of, of um, you know, left, uh, of left political audiences or liberals, many Democrats um, will, will sound um, like they're being critical of those voters and those people and how they live and, and, and their alignment behind Trump. And so as a result, they really don't have anywhere else to go. Now, I think that's, that's a generalization. I think when you dig into the data and you really do talk to people and you learn a little bit more, um, there are pockets of resistance, which is that, look, the bottom line is my life hasn't gotten much better. This area's economy is still stagnant. I may have supported the president in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, but Biden isn't as bad as Hillary Clinton. And to tell you the truth, if you, when you get down to the, the raw numbers of how you win in these battleground states, all it takes is about... 60 to 70,000 of those voters across four states to make a difference and change the elect electoral outcome of 2020. Right. Uh, of 2016. You know? Right. Um, so, well, I mean, that's my take you on gotta, it. You have a, a substantial number of people. I mean, it's not a huge number, but it's not insignificant of people who voted for Obama and then turned around and voted for Trump. It suggests that Biden, that those are gettable voters for him, right? That, that, no, he's not Hillary Clinton. He does not register the same animosity that people had toward her. Um, how do you, what do you think his path to winning is? Well, um, there's a friend of mine who's even involved in politics, and he's probably one of the more staged pieces of advice on this. And I, I, I joked with him. I said, "You have no idea how much, um, how many political pundits would 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 kill to have this that that, that crystal crystallized of analysis." He said, "This is going to be like the Price is Right election." He's like, "You know, it's like one of those things where everybody else just overbids, and Joe Biden stands there and just goes one dollar, <laughs> and he gets into the showcase showdown." You know, yeah. um, he really does have to provide, I think, a, a very uh, a, a much a more simpler contrast to the president's approach, which is the scorched earth, um, a more divisive approach, you know, even admittedly um, uh, being a counterpuncher and always looking to uh, take on his opponents with gusto um, and offer a sort of um, a return to normalcy. Direction, uh, a, a clear alternative when it comes to sort of the the, the economic downturn and the uh, how the crisis, how the uh, healthcare crisis part part of this was was handled, um, and that's really what it comes down to is um, being a little bit, a bit more of a unifier and um, offering people a sense that some because right now I think people are very anxious. And they're and they're potentially um, sort of uh, worn out with the, with the, the nonstop chaos. Yeah. So the the talk, of course, now is uh, about the who Biden's going to pick as a running mate. A lot of speculation. You know, um, he said he will pick a, a woman a running mate. Who do the Republicans worry about the most? Um. That's a good question. Um, I think, I think, I think they're. I think Republicans are happy that he boxed himself in with a uh, choosing a female running mate, a woman running mate. Um, because I think 
are some folks out there that would tell you that, you know, a Biden, Sherrod Brown, or uh, a Biden, Cory Booker, uh, you know, uh, ticket might be very formidable right now. Um, and um, I think somebody who's a centrist like Amy uh, Klobuchar would be seen as a strong, uh, a strong ticket. And I think that's also why they've gone at very popular, or at least governors who seem to be on the rise, like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, that automatically she popped up as somebody who is, you know, um, from a swing state, uh, has a little bit more of a centrist uh, um, profile than some of the, the options that are a little bit more left of center, that that could be a, a you know, formidable ticket. And um, I think that's why they've been sort of focused on criticizing her. And, and, and in, in campaign terms, we used to call it bracketing. I don't know if you guys use that term as well, but yeah. you know, just really like, hey, let's go out there and just really remind people why this might not be the best choice for the, for the, um, for, for the, for the country. Yeah, I think it's probably a little more than coincidental that she had, you know, armed <laughs> armed guys, you know, hunters and whatnot in the state capitol in Lansing, right? And then that she was having to fight that fire even as she's being talked about as, you know, as a potential yeah. national figure. And, and having watched that, I mean, you probably saw the same thing I did. Like, I look, I've, I've worked as a political operative long enough to know, like, that had all the markings of a political coalition or a political operation organizing it. Um, and um, not exactly a genuine grassroots bottom up, but it was it was yeah, like it, it was funded organic. and orchestrated. It wasn't organic, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I think no, no, that no. But on both left and right, you know, right. right. Uh, these aren't organic protests against Trump either. So. Yeah. So, uh, do you think you'll be uh, going to a Republican convention this summer? And where do you think it's going to be? Sorry, you broke up on me, Larry. I'm sorry. I said. Uh, sorry, Larry, you broke up on me there. I couldn't hear your question. Hold on. I, I said, uh, do you see yourself going to a Republican convention this summer, and where do you think it's going to be? Uh, I do not. Um, I really don't like conventions. I don't think I've ever really had a memorable or good experience at them. Um, they really are much more about the pageantry than they are about um, really being organizing tools or um, even the big media events now, particularly since politics is 24 seven, you really don't need the conventions to break through, uh, and get uh, a concentrated level of attention on your candidate in the campaign, the way you did and say, you know, 2000, even as early as 2004, but definitely 2096, uh, and going back where, you know, four, four days of coverage on network news every night was a big way to introduce your candidate. Now, we're talking about two candidates that have been known um, to the American public in some form or fashion for the, for the last 40 years. Um, and so we're not, um, we don't need an introduction to any of these candidates or we're not starving for coverage of politics uh, instead of sports or entertainment or just, you know, um, right. uh, business. Um, so they're really, they're really less and less important. I don't see myself going to one. I don't even think they'll really happen. Um, if they do, they'll be more, they'll be part virtual, um, and they'll be, um, sort of slimmed down. They'll be, they'll be equivalent from a, a what they, whereas they, in the past they used to be like Greek weddings. Now it'll be like, a, you know, a, an elopement down to city hall. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to say the only, I, I have been to a few democratic conventions in various capacities, but the only time. I ever really enjoyed one was when I was working for the guy who was the chairman of the California delegation and we got to assign all the rooms. And so that means the staff, we assigned the best rooms to ourselves. Uh, so that was okay. So we weren't having to go to a hotel like three States away, which, um, people were really doing. And it was un un very, very. Yeah. <laughs> 2008, I had to travel back and forth between Minneapolis and St. Paul. I'm, I can't tell you how much I spent on cabs and Ubers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you one uh, one last question since we're, we're coming up on time. Um, just going back to the bigger picture of the pandemic, um, 
you know, there are there are those, and and I probably am one of them who see opportunities in every crisis. You know that, and even even with all the bad news, you are seeing glimmers of some very interesting thinking and some very interesting kind of problem solving. Do you expect lasting changes for the better as a result of this pandemic? Well, um, yeah, I think if you work in the places like the CDC and have been talking about the need to really have a greater coordination between state and federal authorities on this, uh, obviously you've, you've got your case study on what a worst case scenario looks like. And it's no longer a theory. It's a it's it's no longer a concept. It's reality. Yeah, let's hope it's the worst uh, so, case scenario. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I think um, there this will no longer be um, uh, something that uh, that governors or people involved, the policymakers, really have to sort of dream up. It's it's there. And now the question is, how do we learn from them, and how do we in, in, implement some of these um, these protocols of coordination between the two, so that they're better. I think the other part of it is the local response. Uh, I, I, I've done some focus groups in the last couple of weeks on, on everything from healthcare to criminal justice. And when, when government is closest to the people, people are more satisfied with the government response. And um, you may have Republicans return to that uh, and Democrats have an appreciation for that now in this um, post-COVID. It's, you know, it was always a I don't know what defines Republicans and Democrats anymore nowadays, <laughs> but I know Democrats have always been for, you know, a strong federal government and, and, and policies being directed for the collective good of the country out of Washington, D.C. But I think now you have a case study where state and local authorities have done a better job. So if we can push the resources down and we can incentivize folks to come up with their own plans to tailor them to their own unique economies or unique healthcare constituencies, that you'll have better, more responsive government as a result. Well, Kevin Madden, I can't thank you enough for taking some time. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us on The Deep Dive. Always a pleasure. Um, Larry, thank you for your friendship over these years, and thank you for mentoring me all along the way. I really appreciate it. Yeah, only on the good stuff. The, the bad stuff, uh, that, <laughs> that, that was other people, but I appreciate the kind words. Um, I, um, that's going to do it for us on the deep dive. I, um, want to say that we're, uh, happy to hear from you. Uh, always welcome your suggestions and future discussions and possible guests. Please email us at deep dive at wine down media. That's W I N E wine down media.com on Twitter and Instagram at deep dive show. And please like us on Facebook at deep dive show. We'll be back with another program next Thursday. I'm Larry Cameron.